1: And I'm very happy to have Florence Kaplow with us again, giving a talk this morning. Uh, Probably most of you know her. She's spoken here many times. But for those who don't, uh, Florence is a Zen priest in Zuki Roshi lineage. She's also a Unitarian Universalist minister, most recently down in uh, southern Illinois, um, Champaign-Urbana. She's also... uh, um, an environmental activist, a former professional botanist, uh, and Florence is co editor of a really important, wonderful book called The Hidden Lamp, which is a history of women teachers and great practitioners in Buddhism going back to India and through China and Japan and Tibet and Korea and and now in the States. And in addition to these stories from great women teachers, there are really wonderful commentaries by contemporary women Buddhist teachers. So um, Florence is um, part of our Sangha, but uh, also wonderful to have you uh, speaking this morning. Thank you, Florence.
0: Great to see you all again. Can you, um, for those of you I can see on the screen, can you just, thumbs up, you can hear me all right? Great, thank you. It is good to be here again. Uh, it's also sweet to see the people who are sitting together. I'm so happy for you. That is now an option. And uh, and thank you, Taigan, for your invitation to me and for your continued invitation to me. Uh, it might seem like I'm giving to you, but you you all are giving to me too because it is a joy to share the Dharma with you and. Uh, And that's a wonderful thing to have a moment of joy in this way. So thank you, thank you for being here this morning. As my longtime teacher, Norman Fisher, used to say, if you weren't here, then I couldn't be here. (laughs) So it works out really nicely for all of us. Uh, So uh, this morning, what I want to talk about is... Uh, the spiritual journey of sickness and pain. And some of you might be saying, oh, goody, just just what I wanted to hear about on on a Sunday morning. But I assume that for some of you at this very moment, this might be relevant. And I can almost guarantee a prediction that this subject will be relevant for absolutely everyone who's here at one time or another in your life. So I just offer this from my own experience and um, uh, from the teachings as a, as a, maybe a resource for you for whenever that is relevant. As I know, Uh, Many, maybe most of you know that in our tradition, uh, Buddhist tradition going all the way back to the Buddha, uh, sickness, old age and death were considered, uh, you know, great messengers, great teachers. And I think if we're paying attention in our own lives, we can really see this, that this is really true. And in some traditions, even in some Zen Sanghas, people chant the five remembrances, Uh, every morning to remind ourselves of the reality of these things in our life. Uh, This is a big subject, (laughs) sickness, old age, and death. And so uh, today I'm going to focus on sickness and and see where we go with this. And I really want to be clear that this talk is not an academic one for me. intellectual one for me, a, a kind of talk from a distance. This is, this is really my lived experience. This just happens to be how uh, my life has turned. And so I'm really speaking from uh, my hard one experience, although I'm also going to be uh, sharing from others as well. And just so you know. Even as I speak, I'm not feeling particularly well because I got COVID in um, early part of July after traveling by train, wearing a good mask. And uh, it's really knocked me for a pretty good loop. So I'm still recovering. And it's just a reminder of the fragility of whatever health we have. That's a lot of what the pandemic, of course, has done for us. So I want to begin with a very famous quote from the Vimalakirti Sutra. And this is one of our really beloved Mahayana Sutras. And I just want to give you a little a little background for those of you who have perhaps not studied this sutra. Uh, it's really great. It's, I, I read it many years ago for the first time and I reread it every few years and I, I always really love it. Um, so, it's, it is a Mahayana Sutra, so later than the time of the Buddha, but the story of Vimalakirti takes place at the time of the Buddha. And uh, one of the ways it's quite relevant for us in our life is that Vimalakirti is a layperson, uh, not a, a monk. Um, and uh, in the story, as it, as it kind of opens... Uh, The Buddha is trying to find someone who will go visit Vimalakirti who is ill. And, you know, just as you would in any religious community, to go pay a visit to somebody who's um, having a rough time. Uh, But the trouble is that no one will go. (laughs) Uh, Everyone, uh, the you know, great uh, members of the Sangha, people like Shariputra, very wise people, have had previous encounters with Vimalakirti where his wisdom has overshadowed theirs. And so they don't want to go because it was humiliating the last time that they interacted with Vimalakirti. See, isn't this a great story? Don't you want to go check it out right away? There's actually uh, just to say that in The Hidden Lamp, there are two um, stories within the story of from the Vimalakirti Sutra that are um, actually quite hilarious Um but uh, anyway, so this is a real problem. Nobody will go see him. Uh, and finally, Manjushri, right? Our, you know, Manjushri's on a lot of our altars. You know, he's the Bodhisattva, personification of wisdom. He agrees, even though he has also been humiliated by Vimalakirti. And ah, there we go. Taigen's holding, holding up a Manjushri statue. Uh, it, he's also been um, had some encounters with Vimrakirti in the past, but out of compassion, he agrees to go. And uh, one of the things that I really love about the story is, so Vimrakirti is in his own house, and he's in a little room, a little bed in a little room. Uh, but when Manjushri goes, Everybody goes along, the whole assembly, because they kind of want to see what will happen. And the room is magically large enough to hold everyone. And, uh, and I'll come back to that metaphor a little bit later. So, oh, and the other thing I wanted to mention that's sort of interesting from our Zen perspective is that in traditional monasteries, uh, the abbot's room. Is actually considered Vimalakirti's room, so it's this very small room traditionally, uh, you know, where a meeting with an abbot will would happen. Um, but of course, it can hold the whole world. So, uh, so yeah, Vimalakirti is right in the middle of our practice. Manjushri arrives and asks Vimalakirti about his health, and um, this is what Vimalakirti says back. Um, and this is just the very beginning of a, a long set of um, encounters and dialogues that happen in the, in the sutra. Bhimla Kirti says, Manjushri, my sickness will last as long as do the sicknesses of all living beings. Were all living beings to be free from sickness, I also would not be sick. Why? Manjushri For the Bodhisattva, the world consists only of living beings, and sickness is inherent in living in the world. I'm just going to read that again. There's a lot in this really powerful statement. Manjushri, my sickness will last as long as do the sicknesses of all living beings. Were all living beings to be free from sickness, I also would not be sick. Why? Manjushri, for the Bodhisattva, the world consists only of living beings and sickness is inherent in living in the world. In other words, Vilma Kirti is sick because the world is sick and we are all connected. And he's also a bodhisattva. And although uh, he is a highly unconventional character, maybe, maybe one of the most unconventional in our, in our uh, kind of, well, I guess I can't really say that. There are a lot of unconventional Zen people. But from early, uh, earlier times in Buddhism, uh, he's very highly unconventional. But he is a bodhisattva. And everything he does is to be of benefit to others. Um and and one of the things that I think is really important to understand about the bodhisattva way is that the bodhisattva does not float above the sufferings of the world in some way. And you can really hear that here, right? The, the bodhisattva is right in there with the the muck uh, of our lives. And um, maybe afterwards, Taigen can, I've looked for where this quote is in Dogen. I know it's somewhere. Um, and I, I've always really appreciated it, which is um, more or less, this is a paraphrase, covered in mud and dripping wet. Um, so, you know, that's, that's our practice. That's our life. It's not, it's not somehow to transcend um, the difficulties of this world.
2: And yet, how
0: do we live with this reality, with this understanding? Um, I think for most of us, and I'm speaking for myself as well, sickness really kind of seems like an aberration. Uh, which if you think about it it's a little ridiculous for mortal beings, but still we have this feeling that if we just take the right medicine or get on the right diet or maybe in you know new age thinking, like uh think about things in the right way, that um we'll be fine, maybe forever. Um and um I years ago I had a chance uh several opportunities to uh practice and attend retreats with Stephen Levine, who wrote a book that really brought me to practice called Who Dies? Brilliant book. He was uh, did a lot of work around death and dying. And one of the things he said about that kind of new age understanding is, um, if you took that seriously, like, we all fail at the end, right? No matter how uh, advanced our thinking is, at some point it doesn't actually uh keep us free from sickness old age and death so he was he was quite frustrated by that understanding um and so again this this is true of all of us and um for some of us this reality comes earlier in their life than others uh for me uh, um I was in my early 30s when I first uh plunged into the world of sickness and it was very unexpected um I got mononucleosis kind of much later than most people do and it just really messed with my immune system in a in a pretty profound way and I didn't know what was happening uh I knew about the I knew I had mono um but then all these other things started happening. And for probably the first two years, uh, because it was episodic, I kept thinking every time it went away, I thought, oh, it's over. <laughs> and then it would come back. And it was very painful. I had um, it was like having the flu, really. I would have these horrible body aches that were really, really painful. And it really affected my life because it was very um, unpredictable. And so, you know, I might be in a sachine and I have to do it lying down or I'd have to leave. Um, So it also really affected my practice life, which was very painful. But all aspects of my life were affected. And um, and finally, after two years, I thought, oh, this is this looks like this is chronic. And it was for a long time, for about 11 years. Um, And then miraculously I went into remission and uh, I mean it wasn't entirely miraculously you know there were things that there were causes and conditions but it happened uh, and it did feel like kind of a miracle Um, and that was true for about 10 years and then a year and a half ago I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis which I think I actually think it's all part of the same um, unfolding in a way. And once again, um, illness says uh, you know how they say there's a statement it goes something like, um, "If you really want to let go of things that matter to you, get a new puppy." Uh, same thing is true of illness. Um, it, uh, it it uh, takes away in various ways. so I was at I mean many times I've talked with you over the last years, and I've been an active uh, Unitarian Universalist minister, and I, I had to go on to disability for my job due to fatigue related to the illness. And I'm still, you know, I'm hoping that I'll find a way to um, regain temporarily, we are all temporarily abled, uh, my health, but for now, that's that's my life. And um, so I've really had to look deeply at this question of sickness and pain and how we practice with it, and what it means in a life and um and I continue to be humbled and to
2: learn so uh back to
0: this Vimalakirti story um it might seem like uh this person um was mythological very likely was or lived in some form a long time ago but but i Knew someone who is about the closest thing to uh that I, I think I'll ever encounter in this lifetime, and this was the late uh, Zen teacher Darlene Cohen. And uh, Taigen knew her as well. Uh, she was um, she was quite extraordinary. She. Um, she would be laughing at me, by the way, if I was comparing her to Vimla Kirti <laughs> right now. She would think that was ridiculous. But um, I I think she would be secretly pleased at the thought. And uh, this talk is dedicated to her and her teachings because they've been very important to me over these years. And there are, you know, Zen Center uh, produced many unique and powerful teachers. There's one on this call at this very moment. Uh, but, But Darlene... Maybe was the most unique, <laughs> or one of the very most unique um, she was a Zen student uh, at Zen center in starting in the nineteen seventies um and when she was quite young, also in her thirties, early thirties with a young child living next door to city center in San Francisco uh, with a baby, she developed rheumatoid arthritis and it came on like a thunderclap she was um profoundly affected, and this was a long time ago, and the drugs were not as good. And so um, I'm just going to read a little how she described becoming sick. When the disease first struck me, I was forced to stay in bed. I lost 40 pounds. I couldn't dress myself, hold the phone receiver, or get up from the toilet unassisted. I was completely overcome by unremitting pain, fatigue, and despair. In four months of deterioration, I lost everything that meant anything to me. Reliance on a strong young body, my achievements and the sense of self-worth they brought me, my pleasure in being a sexually attractive woman, which she did regain, by the way, and talked about with great openness, Uh, my identity as a mother, and my ability to do the required practices and sustain myself in the community in which I lived as a student of Zen meditation, I became isolated from everyone I knew by my pain and fear. And ultimately, even by the consuming effort I had to make to do any little thing like get up from a chair, pick up a cup of tea. This is a a frightening um, description of uh, the ravages of a severe illness. But here's a uh, pretty extraordinary thing about Darlene. Um, she continued to practice through all that. She couldn't always practice in a formal way, but she continued to practice. And what, what her life turned into was uh, taking everything that happened to her, that whole experience, and turning it to be of benefit to others. And particularly to be of benefit to others facing um, great pain, and um, and this was her teaching uh, throughout the rest of her life uh, once she was past the um, sort of immediate horrors of what she was dealing with in her early thirties. And again, because the medications at that time were uh, not nearly as powerful as for instance what i'm able to be on now um, when i knew her which would have been uh, i think i probably first met her in her 50s um she was um deeply crippled by the disease um you couldn't look at her without knowing that she was a rheumatoid arthritis patient um she couldn't you know button up her own clothing but there she was teaching and she uh actually the the name of the um kind of practices that she did with people who were in chronic pain was suffering and delight and um she taught a lot about um finding finding pleasure and even joy in the middle of a life of
2: pain and um
0: Just to say she did re- write a number of books, and if you're interested i particu- the quotes you're hearing today are from a book she wrote called "Turning Suffering Inside out so uh she is gone now um, she died of cancer in her sixties, not unrelated to um, to the rheumatoid arthritis uh, but her teachings really live on both in her books and also uh, in her dharma heirs and although i was not able. I was not one of her immediate students. She was part of my life, uh, and in fact, her teachings really helped me um, in the first round of my own illness. And I had a chance to get to know her, which was a, a um, pretty delightful experience and inspiring. So I want, I. I. Uh, I'm just. I wanted to try to give you a picture of her. Uh, so again, this is from when I knew her in her in her fifties, probably late fifties so she was a she was a kind of impish person with the very mischievous with these brilliant eyes, her hands like like claws um a she she at that point she was wearing her hair in a top knot like a tibetan Dakini figure uh and she was really unafraid to talk about anything sex suffering. Rage the full range of human experience, um, and this is another another quote from her. I think many people have a skewed idea of what accepting pain is. Actually, accepting fails to convey the tremendous energy and courage it takes to accept physical pain as part of your life. Truly, accepting pain is not at all like passive resignation rather. It is an active engagement with life in its most intimate sense. In my own journey uh, through illness in its various forms and pain, I've I've noticed and I think there are many, many ways that one could talk about this, but for today what I wanted to talk about are three approaches. Um, to working with chronic illness and pain. Um, And I'm going to give them kind of archetypal names. So one is the sufferer. You really hear that in that description that Darlene wrote about the beginning of her illness. The other is uh, the warrior. And I'll say more about that. Um, And finally, the bodhisattva. And these are not ranked. (laughs) It's not really that like one way is the way you should be uh, if you are a person uh dealing with such things. Um, it's more that these are places we hang out, and they each have their place, they have their gifts, they have their shadow sides. so I want to talk um a bit about each three each of the three, so the first one uh. And often, the first that we really encounter when we encounter illness is the sufferer and uh this one is uh deeply familiar to me, and um number of years ago, uh, probably twelve or fifteen years ago, I wrote an essay for the uh, journal Buddhist journal Inquiring Mind called Dancing in the Dark Fields, which is also what I called this um, talk. And I just wanted to read to you a little bit from that, which is kind of speaking from that piece, the, the suffer piece. I've cried a lot of tears of self-pity in the last few years, and I wonder why self-pity is such a pejorative term. To feel pity for the person in pain, me, has been the first step towards really understanding that this is the human condition. I'm getting a taste of it a little sooner than most, a little later than some. I know a sweet little girl who developed a rare autoimmune illness just before her sixth birthday, and I watched her parents suffer as she struggled for breath. By the way, she survived and is now in her early 20s. My friend Michael, uh, this is Michael Sawyer, uh, for Teigen's, uh sake, uh, lies in his bed with Parkinson's, not able to speak, his eyes locked on mine. Our tears mingle together, a big invisible river circling around the world. And through my tears of self-pity, I join everyone who cries. This was kind of a revelation for me, because I think i'd had a lot of judgment around my own sorrow
2: and grief around my illness this
0: summer i i kind of I kept feeling like uh, I kept saying, "I sort of feel like job <laughs> because I was having so many things go wrong uh, kind of over and over again. there was the rheumatoid arthritis, which led to being immune suppressed, which led to getting COVID. And then I got pneumonia from the COVID. And um, I had a lot of scans, which found lung nodules and carotid artery inflammation. I just went on and on. I was like, oh, come on, give me a break here. You can hear the sufferer here. And um, so I decided to go and look at Job in the Bible again. Um, And... Actually, someone I who studies with me reminded me, uh, or maybe I'd never known it before. Actually, that Job, um, although it's in the Hebrew Bible, uh, Job was a wisdom figure uh, much more ancient even than than the um, time of the Old Testament, uh, probably Babylonian actually. And in the middle of Job, the Book of Job, there is this extraordinary lament. And I just thought I'd read you a little bit of it because I I just think it's quite powerful um, in this realm of the sufferer. This is just, again, just part of it. It's intense. So hang on. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, may the day of my birth perish and the night that said, a boy is conceived. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? For now I would be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest with kings and rulers of the earth who built for themselves palaces now lying in ruins. With princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not hidden away in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? There the wicked cease from turmoil, and there the weary are at rest. For sighing has become my daily food, my groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me, what I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness.
2: I have no rest, only turmoil.
0: And this actually reminds me of a a pretty incredible paragraph of writing, um, and I'm going to be paraphrasing it, um, that uh, the Zen teacher John Tarrant wrote uh, when he was diagnosed with cancer. And he said um, there was this moment um, in the room with the doctor before the diagnosis where my life was as it had been. And then there was a moment after when everything shifted, when everything had changed, and I was a cancer patient. And I'm not, I'm not doing it, because he really describes in kind of really vivid detail that moment of shift where the, where the whole world shifted because of um, what he now
2: knew about his body.
0: When I was uh, preparing to become a Unitarian Universalist minister, one of the very first sermons I ever gave was on riding the big waves of life. And um, one of the things I talked about is that, you know, sometimes a big wave knocks us down, knocks us down, tumbles us in the water, uh, you know, slams us onto the beach kind of over and over again. And, um, you know, what can you do now and then? And I said um, that one of the teachings of a moment like that is humility, deep humility. And here's another quote from Darlene, uh, writing from this place. um, But, uh, yeah, I'll just read it without commenting on it. People sometimes ask me where my own healing energy comes from. How in the midst of this pain, this implacable, slow crippling, can I encourage myself and other people? My answer is that my healing comes from my bitterness itself, my despair, my terror. It comes from the shadow. I dip down into that muck again and again and then am flooded by its healing energy. You could spend, um, that could be a koan
2: that... uh, statement.
0: However, so there are many aspects to the, uh, you know, the time and place of the sufferer. However, if you have spent time in this place too long, and it could be from physical difficulty or emotional difficulty, you will probably find that like Job, everything starts to grow uh, dark. And, um, and it's not a place that one can really live long-term. There has to be other ways of moving through this time. Um, and as people who have been attracted to Zen, um, there might be a little part of you or a big part of you that is also uh, drawn to the warrior archetype. And that is another approach that you can take to uh, illness and, and other um, difficulties that arise in life. And I, I feel like the warrior archetype we can see everywhere in um, our culture's relationship to pain and illness. All you have to do is read obituaries. Uh, and I, I sort of like reading obituaries because you can see so much of maybe not that person, but at least their family's kind of views. And often there's something like um, she fought mightily against the cancer or he struggled for many years with such and such. Uh, and that took great courage. And, um, and we love these, right? Um, my goodness, do you know, certain kinds of television and movies are full of this, right? Bravery, uh, courage in the face of adversity. And Zen has this element, right? And it's, it's a kind of energy, right? And it does take courage. It, it, it takes courage, even though we don't hit each other anymore in our practice of Zen, it takes courage to sit in the middle of your life, whatever it is, uh, the, the fires of your life. We say that we should practice like our heads are on fire. And it is part of the DNA of our practice, this kind of uh, samurai energy. Uh, and And I think that this energy is often needed. Um, when facing difficulty it can give us that that energy to address what is happening to keep looking for answers to refuse to give up um, but it has this other side that i think we need to acknowledge um, one example of the kind of warrior dna of our tradition is uh at tasahara when you're at the zen monastery in the mountains you know in big sur uh, the first time that you go to Tassajara to do a practice period, you reenact a very ancient practice of uh, where a student who wanted to come to the monastery sat outside the gates, um, sometimes for days, uh, waiting to be allowed to come in. So at now what happens at Tassajara is that there's this five-day uh, event called Tangario. And it's really it's just for the people who are there for the first time, and you sit for five days, you're inside <laughs> you're not outside the gate um but you sit for five days in the zendo, and there's there's nothing there's no walking periods, there's no services, there's no talks um you just sit and if you if sitting becomes too painful, you can stand at your place, and that's it uh and it's it's a kind of trial by fire. And part of at least what I learned in Tangario was how to actually take care of myself in that situation. But some people really took it um, as, a, as a warrior practice. And one of the people in my Tangario um, sat without moving for most of those five days and ended up severely damaging his um, sciatic nerve. And as far as I know, he's never been able to sit in half lotus again. Uh, because he he took that too far that um, that warrior energy. So um, I've I've learned this this lesson. I didn't do that, but I've learned this in a lo- over and over and over again dealing with illness. Um, this this kind of um, I'm just going to do it. God damn it! Right, sort of like that is the precursor to usually doing something very stupid around uh, taking care of my body ignoring the messages of the body, um, and it's never worked out very well for me. <laughs> uh, and uh, here's, a, here's another quote from my, my essay. It's easy to fight and resist, but I've learned the hard way how resistance increases the suffering. Instead, there has to be a kind of surrender. The body is firmly in the lead, and my job is to follow it. That's what this dancing partner has taught me.
2: So those are two approaches. Um, Another approach, um, which actually includes both of those, is the bodhisattva.
0: So I'm going to read the quote from Vimalakirti for a third time. Manjushri, my sickness will last as long as do the sicknesses of all living beings. Were all living beings to be free from sickness, I also would not be sick. Why? Manjushri, for the Bodhisattva, the world consists only of living beings, and sickness is inherent in living in the world. So I mentioned about Vimalakirti's room, right, that was big enough to hold the whole world, really. So in this way, there is a kind of spaciousness.
2: There's room for all of it. For self-pity,
0: for the being overwhelmed, for getting caught up in fighting your circumstances, for being the brave warrior, uh, for your courage and care for others. And for remembering that sickness and pain are inherent in living in the world and that it is actually what we share
2: with all living beings. But we are bigger.
0: Than all of it, we are actually bigger than our circumstances, than our sickness, and our awareness can hold it all. And again, this was this was part of Darlene's teachings. We can even, uh, in the Tibetan tradition, particularly there is a practice of dedicating whatever suffering we're experiencing to the well-being and healing of the sufferings that are like that for others. May I find peace in the midst of this pain and illness. May all beings who are ill or in pain, countless beings, find peace. So the Bodhisattva, we know this from our, from our teachings, um, knows two things and never forgets these two things. And they're sometimes called the two wings of the Bodhisattva. And if you think about a bird, right, a bird can't fly with just one wing. It needs both and the the uh on the one hand, the Bodhisattva knows that spaciousness of wisdom and emptiness, the sense of not being separate of being connected with everything um and that the whole kind of birth and death is a kind of story because really uh what we are is this way of the world unfolding, but the Bodhisattva also knows that beings really suffer, that beings really experience birth and death and feel separate, Um, and the only possible response to that is an open heart, to being willing to whatever your condition is, healthy or sick, temporarily healthy, temporarily sick. And we can actually use whatever sickness we have to help others. Um, there's an old koan about this, case 94 from the Book of Serenity. When Dongshan was unwell, a monk asked, You are ill, teacher, but is there anyone who does not get ill? Dongshan said, There is. The monk said, Does the one who is not ill look after you? Dongshan said, I have the opportunity to look after him.
2: So often
0: when we're sick or in pain, it, it separates us from the world. It feels like it's ours. And it, I mean, even in that initial quote from Darlene, right, um, it's isolating. But one way the Bodhisattva can manifest is to actually use your sickness to help others, ill or not ill. Final quote from Darlene. The world that opened to me through engaging the physical suffering and mental anguish caused by my disease has turned out to be inexpressibly rich. Because if we can engage with our suffering, connect with it, dance with it, tease it, coax it, curse it, as well as trying to change it, just consider it our lives, experience it as our lives, the only lives we have, it changes the quality of that suffering. It's not just our suffering. It's everything. When we look at it that way, we can't make the usual divisions. We feel connected with everything. It's strangely comforting, paradoxically comforting. In the moment that we can embrace our own suffering, the barrier between
2: ourselves and others is gone. So um,
0: I, I I think I'll... Um, I want to close with uh, one other thing, but I before I do, I just want to say one thing that might be relevant to someone here or maybe someone else you know. So, starting next Saturday at San Francisco Zen Center, but online, I'm going to be offering a four part class on dancing in the dark fields for people who are dealing with chronic illness or pain, um, which I've never done before. We'll see how it goes, but um, you know, to really Uh, delve more deeply into this. And also my hope is that the people who are attending will bring their own wisdom as well, because there's the wisdom that just arises from living your life. Um, So anyway, you are all more than invited and you can just go to the San Francisco Zen Center and you can see the, the link for that class. Okay. I wanted to close with, um, Shanti Deva's prayer, one of the most beautiful writings I know in our Buddhist
2: tradition. May I become
0: at all times, both now and forever, a protector for those without protection, a guide for those who have lost their way, a ship for those with oceans to cross, a sanctuary for those in danger, a lamp for those in the dark and a servant to all those in need. As long as living beings exist and suffering afflicts them, may I too abide to dispel the misery of the world. May I be a guard for those who need protection, a guide for those on the path, a boat, a raft, a bridge for those who wish to cross the flood. May I be a lamp in the darkness, a resting place for the weary, a healing medicine for all who are sick, a vase of plenty, a tree of miracles. And for the boundless multitudes of living beings, may I bring sustenance and awakening, enduring like the earth and sky until all beings are freed from sorrow and all are awakened.
2: And I think we have some time for discussion. Thank you very much, Florence.
1: So anyone uh, at Ebenezer or online who has a comment or a response or a question for Florence, um, please, uh, you can raise your hand if you're at Ebenezer or signal uh, with your hands if on—if we can see you online or you can go to the participants window and there's a place at the bottom where it says raise hand. So um, please feel free. David and Ray, also, Ray.
0: I, I, I would also say, you know, if you have a story of how you have worked with um, this part of human life, that, too, doesn't have to be a question.
1: So, David Ray, would you please uh, call on people?
2: And here in the hall, if you have a question, you can, you can either use your big room voice or you can come here and sit on the cushion I'm sitting on. I see
3: Dylan. Hello, Vincent Lawrence. It's always um, very wonderful to be with you. Um, I was wondering if uh, you could um, speak a little bit about <clears throat> uh, zazen practice, uh, either in your experience or stories from folks you know about how that changes through through illness. Um, and how the how the body um the the body mind connection transforms uh as that uh happens and the role that zazen practice plays in that um i think you know just just to my experience I remember when I was first starting to sit uh uh i had a, a i was very much leaning into the warrior energy of like I'm not going to move and I'm going to do this. And that was very important to me as I was first starting to sit. And now because I've been sitting, you know, for a couple of years very regularly, I very rarely have that kind of feeling when I sit now. It's much more relaxed and it feels much more um yeah, relaxing, I guess would be the phrase. Um and so I'm just intrigued by how Zazen practice changes depending on how your, how your body is talking to you and how it interacts with, with sitting in practice or zazen practice in general.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I'll admit, so you can probably see behind me. I, I mean, the statue that's on this, at least this particular altar um, is a Kuan Yin. So I lean that way. <laughs> I just have to warn you. Uh, but um, you know, I've never really understood the um, more traditional Zen idea of uh, sitting without moving, even if you're in horrible pain, because I feel like life throws you plenty of horrible pain (laughs) (laughs) and you don't really need to add to it in in Zazen. Um, So that but again, that's my own lean. Uh, You know, I'm not a I'm not a young man of 20 as Norman used to say, that's really, you know, Zen was kind of developed for those people. <laughs> um, but, uh, I, I'm sh I, I know that there can be benefit in that and in, in learning to, um, learning that courage really. But I find that there are lots of other ways that you can learn courage through Zazen, um, without, um, being paid. What I would say is, um, you know, again, the word humility kind of comes up for me. I was a very, uh, you know, I took to uh, Buddha Dharma like a duck to water and meditation practice. And actually, it's never been painful for me, particularly to sit. I mean, other than, you know, middle of sushin or whatever, but I don't suffer a lot um, physically sitting. Um, but illness um, at times made it completely impossible for me to participate formally in Zen practice, which was, a, which, which was just a heartbreak for me. It was such an important part of my life, especially monastic practice and sushin practice, because that's where I had experienced a lot of transformation. And um, I, I went to Tassajara for the second time, um, just as this illness was coming on, and uh, I, I did whole sushins lying down in the zendo because i was too weak and in too much pain to sit up and i was like if you could imagine lying down it's actually quite an amazing practice because i felt like it was a preparation for deathbed practice to to lie there you know looking at the ceiling sort of hour after hour when everybody else you know is like sitting upright and you know doing their thing and there i am And then I got so sick that, you know, all I could do was lying in my bed at Tassara and people brought me food Um, and then I had to leave. And um, so I had to I had to learn different ways to practice because I wasn't going to give up practice, even if I couldn't practice formally. So, for instance, a friend of mine who's a Vipassana practitioner, also very, very dedicated to sitting practice. She and I, and this was great compassion on her part. Um, started doing um, retreats with just the two of us, where we would go to some place together, and we had we had a sort of schedule, and we would cook for one another. But the blocks of time in between, you know, meals or whatever, uh, rest times could be spent in whatever way was actually possible for me at that time. So it and. But it was the same for her, so it might be lying down on the bed, it might be sitting, it might be walking, um, whatever I needed to do to take care of my body. And we did that for many, many years I think, um, almost 20 years we've been doing that practice together, um, which is a beautiful practice that I would have never found, uh, um. And I also did a lot of solo practice where, again, I could take care of myself. And then I went back to Vipassana because I could go to long Vipassana retreats, one month and two month retreats and practice very intensively. But there wasn't the same, um, you know, you need to be in the schedule uh, in the way that Zen is. So I think what I learned, it's kind of long winded here, so sorry, but maybe relevant maybe if somebody else is ever facing this you can give yourself the permission to find your own way is that the that my deep commitment to practice could you know like water through cracks it could find a way to continue even if it didn't look like anybody else's practice um and that that commitment was unshakable and it has been unshakable you know through more than more than um twenty years of of dealing with illness. Um, and that's a that's a very powerful discovery, right? That no matter what, I'll be practicing, including on my deathbed.
2: Did I scare you all? This is a pretty intense um
0: talk. My apologies. Oh, I see somebody somebody moving back there.
4: Yeah, Eve has a comment. Eve, would you would you like to come yes, Eve is coming up. Yes, sorry. Well, you know what, I'll just move the computer and now
3: you're now you're in it. There you are. What's that?
5: Yeah, so I was wondering like about the connections to the larger body in job there's this part where the voice out of the world would says to him do you know when the hinds have? and it's this, this awareness that there's this you know bigger ecosystem that that he's part of that um that he can't control um and and that issue of control is I think you know what comes up in illness too but it so I was thinking about um you know the the I mean, our experience of our relationship to the to the ecosystem and the hmm. um, you know climate change and and the changes that we feel that we're causing, but at the same time that we don't have control over the consequences. And um, and with with COVID, I mean, I haven't personally gotten sick, but but it's still I still feel very much part of the experience that the larger body. <laughs> of the species is going through um and and where it's situated in you know in our experience of our relationship to our, our planet um but something i read recently that i did find very comforting I was reading Kim Stanley Robinson's book about his um the, nonfiction about the his hiking and trekking in the high sierras <laughs> and he talked about um and, and he talked about the effects of climate change about on the um you know some of the animals that live in the high Sierras like the pika that are very sensitive to, to temperature. But he was talking about the marmots and they're marmots and um, they um he said they that they like to look at the sunset, that um there's these boulders where you know, the people like them because they could get a good view of the sunset. But he said, you find a boulder like that, it's all covered with marmots' turds, <laughs> Because the marmots, yeah, the marmots like to sit and look at the sunset. And he said, there's a kind of red lichen that grows on the rock and, and it tends to flourish in the places where the marmots' urine falls. And then again, in those boulders, that you see that red light. And, and, and somehow I find that image of... And, and somehow for me, I don't know, there's something very comforting about that image of the marmots looking at the sunset. I guess to me, if there's other sentient beings that look at sunsets, then, then, then we're going to be okay.
2: Hmm.
0: Well, I'm so glad you brought this up because, of course, one of the ways that Tigan and I have always connected is through our very strong sense of like our practice has to um, include, right, what's happening in the world, in the larger world. Um, and especially, you know, in relation to the planet, just last night, I had some neighbors over eating outside together. And, um, my, one of my neighbors is an agroecologist and we got into a conversation, um, where he expressed the depths of his sorrow, the depths of his grief about, um, You know, for him, not even like that it might mean that we disappear from this planet, but that we're taking so many things with us. And he really knows it, just as I do. I mean, it's one of the, oh, one of the difficult parts about being, you know, trained in ecology and really, really getting it. And his wife was there and she was like, you know, I I don't know if I've ever heard you express this like this. And we talked about how it's almost taboo to say how it feels. And um, the Native American writer, Linda Hogan, I heard her speak once, and she said, until we can actually speak about this, about our grief for the world, and for all the animals in the world, like around the dinner table, just as happened in this conversation last night, um, how are we ever going to actually address it? And maybe it's a little bit like sickness. You know, I think people don't necessarily say a lot of what I just said, even today, out loud. Um, and and maybe that's part of it, is a willingness, like Darlene talked about, you know, the, full, the fullness of our response to the sickness of the world. And, you know, it's like, I'm sick because the world's sick. You could say that's the pandemic, right? The pandemic is a direct directly related to our um, our sickness in relation to the planet, uh, so thank you for bringing that up because um, yeah, I think actually you could take that same quote and do an entirely different talk that was, you know what does it mean when the world is sick? how do we respond um, so thank you. I love the Marmot story too. I'm going to go find that book.
2: <laughs> There's another question in the hall. Yes, yes there is. Yes, keep it turned. Thanks. I will. I will sit asymmetric
6: lotus. <laughs> First of all, my my name is Bryant, and I want to thank you for uh, an extremely important talk. Uh, because you know, I self-confess myself to be an intellectual, and I think in Buddhism in general, I've noticed a tendency that there's a lot of intellectual talk at times about the, all the wonderful concepts. But when one has a personal experience of pain or suffering. Or the the great matters of life and death, uh, it really brings it home why the practice element is so important. Um, because at the end of the day, I think, uh, possibly to misquote someone, Ortega y Gasset said that uh, after you've forgotten everything you've learned, uh, what's left is is the thing of value. Um, and I I think in our practice. That is the thing. If we forget everything else, when body mind drops away, et cetera, our, our practice remains kind of in the delightful story of, of your friend and, and Bodhisattva Darlene, you know, in the midst of great pain, uh, very inspiring that she continued her commitment uh, to the practice. Um, and I guess, So I will offer my own experience recently um, that it might maybe be of benefit. My parents are 90 and 94. uh, And in 2020, they both came down with COVID in the first wave. And they were both in the hospital in adjoining rooms. They couldn't see each other. uh, And they were both quite bad with it. And they both have asthma. So literally worst case scenario. And I even got a call from my mom at one evening from her hospital bed. I'm at home quarantined with my sister and she asked me, am I going to die? And I, I have to say that's one of the most painful moments of my life is that not knowing how to respond to her, um, but thankfully they made it through their hospital stays and they both came home but then since the quarantine was still on my sister and I who was my sister was stuck there at home also quarantined we had to minute by minute by minute for months take care of both of my folks in their separate rooms in the house as they gradually slowly microscopically you know recovered mm-hmm. And I found that the thing that helped me the most in my own sort of to borrow the job job metaphor of the whirlwind of my thoughts and feelings and and just I couldn't focus at times. Uh, I recalled very vividly the uh, Zen story that Taigen wrote a book about uh, the interchange where uh, at one point you know what is you know what is I'm gonna misquote it, but just this is it you know kind of is 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 the answer that's given, and in my in my understanding, it's a wonderful, short, memorable way of entering into non duality, so I tried to when I was suffering the most in my efforts to take care of my folks uh along with my sister. And all these labels would come up of illness and COVID and all these other things. I tried to drop all the labels that were causing, you know, because comparing mind, right? They're not healthy, they're sick. Mm. And I tried to give up that duality and I tried to stay focused on there's no healthy and there's no sick, there's just this. Mm. You know, Mm -hmm. there is just whatever is present. And when you label it pain and when you label it illness and when you label it, you know, any other label, that sets up a duality that causes suffering, because now you're not in this wonderful Empyrean realm called health, you're in this, you know, hell realm called illness. But if you drop both those labels, and you just say just this, whatever is presenting, I found that to be extraordinarily uh, helpful, um, a way of dropping all that whirlwind of comparing and concepts and just being able to focus on what's the next thing that needs doing? What's the next thing after that? What's the next thing after that? And just, you know, step-by-step. There's a story of a Tibetan master um, who came out of Tibet in the, you know, the late fifties when the Chinese were murdering everyone. And he walked in the snow over the Himalayas with some, some fellow Tibetans and made it to Dharamsala, or he might have made it to Darjeeling first. And uh, there's an American who studied with him who asked him, you know, how did you do that? And he, you know, expecting some wonderful Dharma philosophical answer. And the, and the Lama said one step at a time, (laughs) you know, and, and I think our minds as they say, lump on all the extra suffering when we start comparing to what we conceive could be an alternate to what is right now. But I personally found extraordinary value in uh, just repeating the phrase, which is the title of Tigan's book, just this is it. You know, what is this right now? What, what needs doing? Um, so that's, hmm. that's my little anecdote. <laughs> uh, and, and thank you again for a very important talk.
0: Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm glad that your parents survived that
6: experience. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you.
2: I think I uh, saw Ed with his hand up.
1: Yeah. Ed. Oh. Oh thanks. And it really was I think Brian 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 addressed it to some degree. I mean, thanks, Florence. I think the idea of the idea of health itself is brought to the table.
2: Lawrence, I have a question mm. thank you so much for this talk. Um, my
4: question is there's a quality that I heard in your in your talk and I'm sort of groping for the name for it but um it's a kind of ironic almost humor that is not ironic distance so maybe irony is the wrong word but 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 there's an but I hear something that is not just not just not just a suppleness but but a kind of i mean and not just sort of flashes of humor, but but so I'm 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 wondering what, what is that there there is there is something that is willing to 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 find simple humor in even the, the the worst experiences of suffering. And an an additional question is: I wonder if you think there's something is is there something gendered about uh potentiality of, of, of finding certain kinds of play in deep suffering.
0: Mm. Well, I think the the humor is a is a really good point. I mean, um, it, when you were talking, I was thinking about at one point I did this little um, was going to do a sermon on uh, long love of uh, couples that had been together more than 50 years. And I interviewed a bunch of them. And without exception, they all said that the only way they had made it was through humor. <laughs> um, and maybe you could say the same thing about, you know, living with, you know, and we all live with difficulty, but, you know, uh, especially living with illness that, um, that humor, uh, or a certain, uh, maybe, I, I guess the word I would say is a kind of, uh, holding something, even, even your misery with a certain kind of lightness, um, and uh yeah i th- i think i think that's um and I, again thinking about darlene um that was there you know right up to the end of her life that very last story in the hidden lamp is about darlene um and it's pretty funny and it's a deathbed story uh and um but i'm not sure it's gendered i i mean <laughs> One of the funniest stories I know in terms of deathbed story is from um, Isan Dorsey, who is another great and unique uh, (laughs) Zen teacher from San Francisco Zen Center. And, uh, and for those of you who don't know, there's a wonderful biography of him. Um, He was among other things, a drag queen Uh, and, um, and worked a lot with AIDS patients Um, and someone was saying goodbye, you know, came to see him on his deathbed and said, um, I'm, I'm so, uh, how did he put it? I'm going to miss you so much. And Isan said, darling, are you going somewhere? (laughs) So, and you know, there's a lot of humor in our Zen practice. I mean, it's all very, very serious, right? But, oh my God, you read those cons and, um, Actually, you know, it's funny. I'm thinking of all the death koans, but there's this one I love in the book where a guy has heard about all the different, like, cool ways that Zen masters, you know, die, like sitting in Zazen or or whatever. So he, he asks, has anybody ever died standing on their head? And people are like, no, no, don't think so. And he's like, okay, you know, that's going to be my way. He dies <laughs> standing on his head. And none of the monks can knock him over. Like he's stuck, like, and they can't get rid of his body. He's like in this ridiculous position. And his sister, who's also a practitioner, comes back from traveling and finds this circumstance. And he's like, she's like, oh, you've always been a troublemaker. And she pushes his body over. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, yeah, I think, I think it's one of our, one of our superpowers, one of our Zen superpowers is being able to laugh.
1: Thank you so much, Florence.